Welcome to the South Asian Voices Subcontinental Podcast, where we're here to discuss security, strategy, politics, and the history of Southern Asia. I'm your host, Samir Lawani, and we're joined today by Mr. Moeed Pirzada of Dunia News. Uh, and Moeed is a well-known television journalist, analyst, political commentator in Pakistan. Uh, currently, he's the editor of Strategic Affairs at Dunia News and hosts a show tonight with Moeed Pirzada, which I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. Moeed, thank you so much for joining us on the Subcontinental. Samir, thanks for inviting me. So let's dive right in. We had a, a pretty big speech by the U.S. president on Monday evening, Eastern Standard Time, uh, where he made, laid out in a case for the U.S. continuing its presence in Afghanistan, uh, some, some would say uh, an indefinite presence uh, and escalation. What is your sense of the Pakistani strategic and political establishment's response to President Trump's speech, particularly some of the things he said about Pakistan? I think the Pakistani military tried preempting his speech by their own ISPR press conference um, about 10 hours, 12 hours before President Trump's speech. But the take-home message in Pakistan is that the U.S. is asking Pakistan to help them militarily uh, against the Afghan Taliban, so that the, they want Pakistan to press hard on Afghan Taliban. Now, they want Pakistan to bring them to negotiation table mm-hmm. or want them to um, actively engage them in fighting. This is what the question here is today for the media. Okay. Is it likely that Pakistan will will go along with President Trump's request to, to increase cooperation on, on this military front? I think if, if U.S. is expecting Pakistan to militarily engage or hit at the Afghan Taliban or Haqqani network, that's not going to happen. That's very, very difficult for Pakistan to do. Mm-hmm. But yes, Pakistan can engage, can help in increasing the pressure. But that too has its limitations because Pakistan has been increasing the pressure. And now, as a result of the pressure, arrests of the Afghan Taliban in Quetta, detention, uh, Mullah Mansour's killing, the Afghan Taliban generally see Pakistan less creditworthy. They have less and less trust on Islamabad and Pakistani military. So Pakistan has serious limitations, especially if U.S. expects them to uh, hit hard at Taliban. So Pakistan has limitations in terms of meeting, meeting the goals. What if the U.S. starts to, I think Secretary of State Tillerson started to elaborate a little bit on some of the coercive levers the U.S. might turn to. Uh, you mentioned, you know, reductions in aid, removing Pakistan's non-NATO ally status, um, military sales, targeted sanctions. What are Pakistan's likely responses to some of these coercive measures that the U.S. might adopt? I think the Pakistan for the past several weeks has been debating these options because the idea that the new uh, the Trump review and then um, uh, new policy in Afghanistan, I think Pakistan has braced itself uh, for an end to all kind of uh, military aid uh, from the U.S. So it's already uh, prepared for that. Pakistan is mentally prepared for a rupture in all kind of military aid uh, and also a breakdown of the status of the non-NATO military ally. But Pakistanis do not expect the United States to go beyond this. Okay. What, if you were to sum up briefly what Pakistan's objectives are in Afghanistan, what would they be? And- See, you know, this this needs little elaboration. You know, few people now remember this thing that um, uh, 50% of Balochistan, Pakistani Balochistan, and almost more than 50% of the Pakistani uh, province of NWFP or KP mm-hmm. used to be Afghanistan. Okay. So um, this is by the beginning of 19th century when the Maharaja uh, Ranjit Singh Kingdom snatched away uh, what is now KP mm-hmm. away from the rulers of the Kabul and the Afghanistan. And that had been a bone of contention between 
the British uh, military presence from Rawalpindi and between the Kabul rulers for almost 1900 years before Pakistan came into existence. Mm. So Pakistan has very Pakistan and Afghanistan have very deep seated uh, structural, uh, ethnic, uh, cultural, historical baggage problem, right, which is not understood. So for Pakistan, the most important thing is that if Afghanistan is not stable, if Afghanistan remains disturbed, if it doesn't have a central authority, then Pakistan's two provinces will continue to remain disturbed. And if KP remains disturbed, then Punjab will be disturbed. And this is precisely what is happening continuously uh, ever since uh, the Soviet invasion, and even before the Soviet invasion, the Afghans' center of gravity in Kabul got disturbed. Mm -hmm. That is why Pakistan, Pakistan has to have a need to step in to stabilize and play its role in stabilization. This is not understood. Right. Because right. such is the narrative and debate that Pakistan, the Afghan instability directly affects Pakistan. Right. Whether it affects anyone else or not, it directly affects Pakistan. So this is really important. You're, as I understand it, you're saying that Pakistan has a theory of stability and central authority in Afghanistan. Now, does that diverge from the United States and NATO's concept of stability in Afghanistan? Because I think the U.S. would say we want stability too, but do they, have, do they mean different things when they say that? Absolutely. Um, in, in what is, it is not said, it is not said in official communication, but behind the official communication, the Pakistani, all centers of power in Pakistan suspect uh, that the United States intends to stay in Afghanistan uh, for, for continuously, for an indefinite period, like the South Korea model, mm -hmm. Seoul mm -hmm. model, in order to keep its presence in an area which is vital to Pakistan and China and Iran and also Russia. Right. Uh, while, while China and Pakistan are collaborating to develop a trade corridor, uh, which might suck in Iran, Iran also exhibits and shows and demonstrates interest in the trade corridor, the United States wants to keep its presence in that area and, and maintaining a conflict at a suboptimal level which does not involve huge U.S. expenses, perhaps United States' real strategic goal. And this is why, and this is why uh, you see an increasing cooperation between Russia, China, Pakistan, and Iran in, in creating situations for United States to get out of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And the United States appears not to be ready for this. Okay. Yeah, this is another sort of interesting thing that I think in the United States, there at least was one strain of argument that said that the United States needs to commit to staying in the region for the long term in order to get Pakistan to collaborate. But it sounds like what you're saying is actually by signaling that the United States is going to stay there indefinitely, that actually creates raises alarm bells, not just in Islamabad, but also around the region. Is that right? Yes. I mean, none of the countries say it very openly. When you talk to Chinese diplomats or the Russian diplomats in Islamabad, or you talk to their media, and you talk to Pakistani, uh, the military, the intelligence community, and the Islamabad uh, think tank community, this mm -hmm. is precisely what they fear. The right. United States is creating, and India, both, I mean, the only regional power that wants United States to continue staying in, the, uh, in Afghanistan indefinitely, apart from the regime in Kabul, uh, is India. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at Iran, Russia, China, and Central Asian republics, and Pakistan, all want the United States to give a, some kind of time frame in which it can leave and to engage all sides of the Afghan leadership, I mean, the Afghan Taliban, so that the United States can leave. I mean, this is what the goal was uh, behind the Mari process mm -hmm. uh, in, in 2015. And again, the Moscow process of talks, which started uh, in December 2016, which United States initially boycotted, uh, but is sort of a willy-nilly partner in it. Right. 
How seriously does Pakistan take the uh, the president's words about encouraging India to step up its role in Afghanistan? Is that uh, seen as, I mean, so I know I've heard a lot of responses about how this is sort of ultimately um, fueling sort of a proxy conflict in Afghanistan, but does Pakistan really believe India is going to step up efforts in, in Afghanistan? You know, there has been a lot of reaction, Samir, to this. Um, my personal view is this, that Indian, uh, irrespective of the United States urging, mm. uh, Indian Indian bureaucracies, the foreign office, its intelligence community in the military, historically are very cautious and very responsible. Mm -hmm. They will see that this kind of proxy conflict, because if Indians get involved in a very visible fashion, because Pakistanis are always blaming them uh, for the past 10, 15 years that uh, India's RAW and IB yeah. uh, are very closely uh, integrated with the NDS. Right. And they blame them for the terrorist uh, operations in KP and in Balochistan and the insurgency. So if it were India to involve in a very visible fashion, India would become a target in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the Indian Foreign Office would actually like uh, India, India, India to become a target in Afghanistan. Right, right. Yeah, there's certainly a sort of a question of whether India is interested in it, but also there's also a capability question, whether they have the ability to uh, provide, you know, uh, not just uh, economic resources, but if we were talking about escalating to military training or assistance or even, you know, actual deployments, it just seems that India's, uh, the, the problem of distance and access and uh, deployments would, would all be logistical challenges for India. You know, we, we generally hear from our own sources that India has a very uh, uh, significant intelligence exposure in terms of finance. Mm. So in 2015, it had crossed the limit of 400 million U.S. dollars, uh, the uh, the exposure of the Indian intelligence to Afghanistan. But, oh, that wow. still is, but that still is an investment. That's an investment into yeah. their assets, or that's investment into NDS, NDS training, okay. cooperation, and all this. Uh, India doesn't maintain a visible presence in terms of military assets or right. security assets. Uh, whatever is there is, is some sort of cooperation with the Afghan. Right. If it becomes very visible, of course, um, the cost will also escalate, but they will definitely become very visible and kosher targets. Uh, yeah. And also, we should not forget that uh, um, while Chinese, Chinese are generally a power of understatement, but we do increasingly hear of increasing contacts between the Afghan Taliban, the Chinese, and the Russians on the other hand. Uh, and also the Ira Iranians, which have historically been a foe, being a Shia power of the orthodox Sunni Taliban, mm -hmm. have warmed up towards Taliban. So right. they are increasingly more willing uh, to talk to Taliban to accommodate them and, right. and envision a future in which Afghan Taliban can have a power-sharing arrangement. So right. all these realities, to my mind, makes it very difficult for uh, India to get actively involved in a visible fashion. So I'm glad you brought up Iran here because I'm I'm genuinely curious. Uh, it does seem that Iran has sort of made this shift over the last 10 years and even longer uh, in terms of warming towards the Taliban, probably as a counterbalance to, to the United States, but also uh, just p potentially because it also sees the Taliban a potentially stabilizing force. Do Pakistan and Iran see eye to eye on their objectives in Afghanistan, or are they in competition? Iran uh, has historically, after the departure of the Shah, uh, seen Pakistan as the rival in the region. Also, with deep suspicion, because Pakistan Iranians have always viewed, I mean, if you talk off the record, Iranians view Pakistan and Pakistani military as an American lackey. Mm. Uh, and also the look down upon Pakistanis as a as a derived culture because Pakistani culture and language and cuisine are mostly a, a derivative of the Persian culture. Mm. So they they have looked down upon Pakistan. So uh, 
so and within Islamabad, Iran is always seen as a challenge uh, that wants to become a nuclear power, which Islamabad doesn't want Pakistan, Iran to become nuclear power. But Islamabad is very cautious in terms of expressing its reaction towards Iran uh, because of the fear of that Iran can play inside the Pakistani politics, and it doesn't want to increase force on its uh, uh, western side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they also see with suspicion the trade and economic cooperation or strategic cooperation with India. But now for the past 12 to 18 months, there are signals as if Iran would be more interested in the trade corridor between Pakistan and China. Okay. And there is some degrees of warming. Uh, and also as Pakistan and U.S. relationship become less and less friendly, uh, so Iran sees an opportunity of engaging Pakistan, perhaps. Right. Now, I remember two years ago, there was a uh sort of the question of whether Pakistan would commit um, troops and support the uh, Gulf states in their in their war in Yemen, but also in general, there's just been this ongoing Gulf tension between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Do you see Pakistan getting drawn into that, or are they able to remain out of it? Absolutely not. Pakistan, this has been a huge public debate here ever since the Yemen crisis started. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and despite the fact the uh, Saudi authorities, the Saudi government, the UAE, and they all wanted Pakistan to, uh, uh, to get involved. Um, and even when Pakistan was not getting physically involved, they want Pakistan to get at least uh, symbolically involved. Uh, right. but, but the Pakistani refusal led to a um, uh, sore relationship between Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and UAE. Um, uh, uh, I mean, they have improved a bit since then, uh, but still, it's not the same relationship. There is a level of distrust between Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and, uh, and UAE mm-hmm. on that particular issue of not making the troop engagement, the troop commitment. Right, but even though even though General Rahil went o- went on to become the commander in chief of that uh, that sort of multinational unit, that still hasn't um, repaired the relations with the Saudis. It's still yeah, the jury is still out. I mean, um, but. Our sense is this here that this is mostly a cosmetic, a symbolic thing. Okay. Uh, General Rahil Sharif's involvement over there is not going to lead to any commitment on part of the Pakistani military. Right. Okay. So let's just ju- uh, turn gears a little bit. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the the other big story that's rocked Pakistan for the last year plus, um, and culminating in this recent Supreme Court decision that disqualified Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif after the joint investigative team showed. Uh, evidence of concealment of assets, potential falsification of evidence by the Sharif family. So I'm curious about both the short-term implications and the long-term implications. Short-term, how do we expect politics to play out over the next six to eight months? Will Abbasi remain on as prime minister? Will Shabazz Sharif become the new prime minister in the new elections? Uh, Do we expect some sort of major shakeup in political balance of power? What, What do you see in the next six to eight months? Okay, on 17th September, there is a very important, crucial by-election in Lahore mm-hmm. for NA120. That is a seat that was uh, vacated by Nawaz Sharif as a member of the National Assembly. Right. And Nawaz has finally ended up nominating his own wife, right. Kulsum Nawaz, right. uh, for this election. Kulsum is right now in London. Uh, there's a lot of controversy. What is wrong with her? Now it's being said that she's suffering from uh, cancer, cancer. Of the, right, right. cancer of the throat. But her campaign is now being run by her daughter, Mariam, mm-hmm. uh, who is also indicted uh, in the corruption references right. uh, to the National Accountability Bureau by the Supreme Court. Right. But the crucial, but this, but this election is the most crucial election in the Pakistani politics at the moment. Because if Kulsum wins this election uh, and enters the parliament, enters the National Assembly um, from the seat, 
then Kalsum could either be the prime minister, okay, uh, 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 or she could be the sword of Democles hang, hanging on Prime Minister Khakan Abbasi. Because if he tries to, because PML leadership openly says that Khakan Abbasi is not the prime minister, hmm. though he's the nominee of Nawaz Sharif, but they say he's not the prime minister, he's only a figurehead, he's a temporary person. Our prime minister is still Nawaz Sharif. Hmm. So, wow. if, if uh, whereas Khakan Abbasi is seen by the Pakistani establishment, media, diplomatic community in Islamabad, uh, a developmental and donor community who have met him as a very sagacious uh, person who is a businessman. He's been CEO of the Air Blue company and has been a businessman for the past 30 plus years. Right. Is the richest declared member of the parliament in terms of his publicly declared assets. So uh, the threat for the Sharif family is that if Hakan Abbasi tries to perceive himself or settles as, as a prime minister, they have to uh, they have to do something about it. So uh, Kalsum's presence, Kalsum can be an alternative prime minister or she could be a persistent threat mm -hmm. on the head of uh, Khakran Abbasi. Now, what will happen in the election assumes great importance. If Nawaz wins the election, he will be able to maintain, uh, if Kalsum wins the election for Nawaz, right, then right. Nawaz Sharif would be able to maintain his stranglehold on PMLN and Punjabi politics. If Kalsum loses, then Nawaz's immediate family uh, would lose power, right. uh, would lose the semblance of psychological semblance of power. They no longer have a foothold in the, in, in the National Assembly after that. But what will happen then is, then PMLN, which is the largest block of politics, political, a political faction, uh, and holds Punjab by more than 130 seats, 148, right. will split apart into several factions. You know, uh, a Potowar faction, a Central Punjab faction, a faction led by Nawaz's brother, affection led by Nawaz Sharif himself. Wow. So that is why the election is very crucial. So right now, the whole power base is stitched together under an aura of power. There have been no visible defections. Right. But there are fault lines in between. So that is why the NA120 election on 17th September is the most crucial election in Pakistani politics. Wow. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't fully realize that there was this internal power struggle occurring within the PMLN that threatens to dissolve it, essentially, is what you're saying. Yeah, but, but uh, yeah, uh, because it's a very large political party. Mm -hmm. It's not a party. It's actually none of the Pakistani political parties, except for Jamaat Islami, uh, is a political party in the sense it can be defined. These are all built structures of interests of wannabes uh, around a powerful personality. Mm -hmm. So PMLN is a structure which is built around Nawaz Sharif. Right. So if Nawaz is not able to see to win the NA NA one hundred and twenty through his wife then the other centers of power within the PMLN will start to think about themselves mm. as to how they have to position themselves uh, for, for, the, uh, for the forthcoming elections, right. uh, uh, the 2018 elections. So It will empower PP PTI, the right. opposition, and PPP in Punjab. Right, because right. right now, PTI has only eight seats in 2013 election, which they uh, thought was very much rigged against them. So both PPP and PTI have always maintained that the 2013 elections were seriously rigged all across Punjab. Right. So if Nawaz loses out in an NA120, then it will strengthen PPP and PTI inside Punjab. So immediately after the decision, though, there was a lot of talk of Shabazz Sharif sort of stepping into the role for the family, that he was both capable, he, you know, he's controlled uh, the province of Punjab for quite a while. Um, so. But you don't think he can fill that role, or is there, there's a lot of sort of challengers to his ability to sort of take up the mantle in in the 2018 elections, or does he not want to play that role? Okay, no, no, no. There is a lot of uh, gray area as to what really happened immediately afterwards. Right. There was a 
split uh, in the family between the family of the two brothers nawaz's family uh, his daughter maryam and kulsum nawaz and shahbaz and his son hamza and suleiman on the other hand right when Shab- when shahbaz was offered uh, first of all we are not sure if the offer from nawaz to shahbaz to come to the centrist prime minister was genuine okay it was perhaps to keep the party together because if they wanted to keep the semblance that there no false lines uh, so that is why shahbaz was mentioned but shahbaz in turn wanted um Uh, if he really wanted to move from leaving the as chief ministership of punjab which is the real power hold mm-hmm. within pakistani politics with 60% of, uh, of power in one province so he wanted his son hamza to be to nominated as chief and and chief minister of punjab to keep right. the mantle right. which was an unacceptable position to maryam and kulsum and to uh, of course nawaz because nawaz doesn't speak himself most of the occasions he speaks to the others mm-hmm. so it became visible that they were not willing to let shahbaz's son be the chief minister uh and shahbaz didn't want to leave the province and come here for 8 months or 9 months before the election uh and then it was that uh, so that is how the shahbaz thing petered out and there were also differences then that who would be the president of the pmln as a political party because election commission uh on petitions then notified that nawaz cannot be the president of since he's disqualified of pmln party right, right. so it was expected that shahbaz sharif will be the president but nawaz on his own nominated a total non entity uh, nasir yaqub a baluch uh, leader who has no presence uh, in pakistani politics as the interim president of pmln now we hear two days ago that shahbaz sharif will be the president of pmln on 7th september but most of the political observers say unless it happens we can't really trust it if it doesn't happen uh, on 7th september if shahbaz doesn't become the president of pmln that means there are rifts which are not being admitted Wow. This this level of palace intrigue is uh, just way over my head these days. <laughs> But this is remarkable. So things are rapidly moving day to day. Yes, uh, also Shahbaz's son uh, Hamza uh, is not participating in the election campaign for Kulsum Nawaz. Though in every by-election he has been the architect and the strategist. But this time he's absent. Staying out. Now the two views either he's staying out or the uh, or the Kulsum Nawaz and Maryam didn't want him. to run that campaign because they didn't trust him because the view was this that Shahbaz and his son might not fully uh, cooperate and winning NA 120 under the present circumstances without an active support of the Punjabi administration like the civil civil bureaucracy election commission uh, Punjabi bureaucracy police and district management would actually be tough so mm-hmm. now Maryam uh, now it is known that Maryam Nawaz herself the prime minister's daughter and considered heir apparent uh after 2018 will run the campaign herself wow. so uh this is the major battle um besides i'm trying to sort of dig a little bit pull the onion back a little bit um what are the implications more broadly for uh pakistan's you know relationship with with china for example um in terms of the cpec investments that have been ongoing is that is this level of, sort of uncertainty creating problems with sort of future investments and future economic outlook at all no not at all not with china uh, because uh, china historically maintains its relationship state to state mm-hmm. um uh, the former prime minister zulfikar ali bhutto uh, for instance was the architect of pak china relationship in 1960s this he was the one who as a foreign minister really brought pakistan and china together right but when the mili- when, when, when military removed him and subsequently uh he was hanged uh in a very controversial court decision it didn't affect pakistan china relationship at all mm. and we should also not 
not forget, um, because unlike U.S., uh, but United States also maintains this relationship with the Pakistani state in the form of GHQ and military. Sure. But it, it relationship keeps on fluctuating by changes in Washington or by changes in Islamabad, especially right. changes in Washington, or, or by the regional situation. But China's relationship is very is very stable, uh, yeah. and China never speaks about the relationship. So the possibility of it being affected by Nawaz's departure or whatever happens in Pakistan is very limited. Uh, 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 this is this is my image at you, but right. let's take the follow-up question. Well, okay. But the only other part of this was that it just seems that the Nawaz Sharif himself had so, so much personally invested in CPEC and had put a lot of his own reputation on the line for this that I wonder if the Chinese were expecting that he was the one to to, to you know deliver on the politics, the polit- the thorny political challenges in terms of you know the routes through KP, the different sort of uh, investments in, in energy sector. Uh, but if if you're saying that it's not necessarily tethered to him, but rather just to the state as a whole, then it shouldn't be a transition. Uh, shouldn't be a problem in transition. Is that right? No. You see, uh, the CPEC, uh, the China Pakistan Economic Corridor, has been sold as a narrative in Pakistan politically, uh, in a very in a very political fashion, which ignores the fact that it's principally China, and not Pakistan. The way it has been structured benefits from that relationship, mm. and the real and 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 there is a, there are lots of murmurs that are increasing that if this relationship is not negotiated properly or has not been negotiated properly, Pakistan risks becoming an India a Chinese colony right. out of the fair out of the fear of U.S. and India. So this is the and China the China debt trap argument that I've heard some people yes, make. The China yeah. debt trap argument is the China debt trap argument is euphemistically or popularly referred to as Chinese colony mm. and another East India company relationship. Yep, yep. And the reasons for this is this, that it is it is the first time that a Central Asian power is getting access to Indian Ocean and Arabian Sea via a landmass. Mm. And given China's myriad economic and strategic needs, it's a huge favor to the Chinese power from the Pakistani state uh, on its western side. However, it has been sold in a way uh, by Nawaz Sharif and his party uh, that somehow the other Nawaz Sharif, Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, was smart enough, or sagacious enough to twist the Chinese arm to force them to invest in CPAC. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now more and more people, especially in the more educated circles, realize that Pakistan didn't get a better deal from China right. because uh, uh, Chinese investments are very limited as compared to the Chinese loans, as you mentioned, as the debt trap. Right. And, and, and the huge favor which Pakistan is doing to China in terms of connecting the Western China uh, to the Middle Eastern markets and European markets and African markets via the Indian Ocean and, and saving them from the Strait of Malacca where they face a strategic threat, a potential strategic threat from Indo-US naval presence uh, in case of any kind of emergency. That has been totally ignored by the Pakistanis in the beginning. Under yeah. And Pakistanis have been very happy the Chinese are here to save them. And perhaps the fear of India and the fear of United States has made Pakistanis not look at the implications of the CPAC uh, in a strategic and economic fashion. So uh, that is why it's not going to affect, because ultimately someone has to, if Pakistanis do not negotiate uh, what is their relationship with China and what kind of contracts Nawaz government has entered, then it's going to be a huge debt trap. And right. This might actually even destabilize China-Pakistan relationship. Do you think the kind, that, of, S, the kind of SROs, let me add, the kind of yeah. SROs they have signed in which they have given uh, all across the CPAC the Chinese companies the right to bring in all kind of material and labor uh, free of any import duties and custom mm. duties and any kind of tariffs. Right. It, 
as more and more Pakistani companies I've spoken in Karachi and all across Punjab are extremely shocked and disappointed. Wow. They are given the rhetoric of the Pak China relationship, they are they cannot openly come up and criticize. But I've spoken to business people and they're very worried. Yeah. Because they said they thought that China CPEC will help them to sell more steel and steel bars and ingots and the labor chances and consulting services. But if Chinese are going to bring everything themselves right. free of cost, uh, like look at cement, you know. Yeah. And what would Pakistanis be selling on CPAC? And this is a pattern that China has uh, demonstrated in a lot of other countries as well, um, which is why I think a lot of people are expecting a, a degree of friction to, to take place here. But do you expect any future leader um, of Pakistan after the 2018 elections or even sooner to try to renegotiate the terms of these investment deals? Or is that not possible? I, I, you know, I suspect that some sort of behind the scene negotiation will definitely start. Yeah. Um, because um, we hear this thing. I mean, I I can't confirm this, but I I have increasingly heard that even the military chief um, uh, has been has been very um, has been very pointed on this that you know these deals are not really to our. I mean, we really need to re- reflect on this. I mean, th- these deals have not been really reflected, and there has been a lot of complaint uh, from military and even intelligence. That CPEC deals were not transparent to anybody. I mm-hmm. mean, the U.S. embassy also gave us a, a presentation on this oh, several months ago, and they also said that they expected that CPEC deals will be open to international firms from Europe and U.S. But the way all deals have been struck uh, is like uh, Chinese and Pakistani companies, and very many Pakistani businesses suspect that some of the Chinese companies are actually Pakistani companies that have been registered in China uh, and they have been given the deals. So there's a lot of corruption, right, kickback. Right. 20, 20%, 25% kickback. Yep, yep. If $50 billion, 10% kickback means $5 billion. No. 20% kickback means $10 billion. And since these projects were to be completed by year 2023, uh, so there is an internal debate on that issue. Right. So this seems to underscore the importance of at least Pakistan's relationship with other countries, perhaps including the United States, because if they do want to renegotiate the terms, they need to have some leverage and having a relationship with another great power like the United States might help. Presumably, yes, agreed. But but the way Trump administration is conducting themselves, there are more and more fears. Pakistan has fallen into the Chinese lap uh, because of the fear of the United States. If it right. if it if it could trust, I think in Pakistan, uh, the amazing goodwill for China stems from the fact that Pakistanis are extremely worried and suspicious about U.S. intentions in the region. Right. Uh, and the Indo-U.S. nexus or alliance and strategic relationship which keeps on appearing in the form of every new contract. So uh, so it is the fear of the Indo-US nexus that drives Pakistan uncritically uh, into a Chinese embrace. Mm, this is fascinating. So, you know, I, I skipped over an important question uh, back to the Nawaz Sharif uh, ouster. Uh, broader implications, do you see this as a victory for democracy or a subversion of the rule of law? And I'll just read a couple quotes from uh, the uh, BU professor and uh, head of the Global Studies Department, Adil Najam, who's uh, said that, you know, basically um, the clause under which Nawaz was discredited, uh, you know, on, uh, leaders being honest and reliable could basically rule out all of <laughs> Pakistani politicians. And frankly, you know, you could throw U.S. politicians into that mix, uh, but also that all democratic governments have fallen on the sword of supposed accountability. So so what are we to make of the implications of this? So Adil uh, is a very good friend. Um since the college days, sure. but Adil is not based in Pakistan. Adil right. has no feet and ground presence, and most of the comments that appeared in New York Times, Washington Post, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs—you caught me—is very, <laughs> very misleading. It's okay. very misleading 
because their correspondents don't have any presence they rely upon the uh, they rely what to call as fingers sure. and then there's a certain kind of lens within washington beltway politics of looking at pakistan so they see everything with a military lens or with an afghan lens or india lens there is no real understanding of the dynamics of the pakistani politics fair point uh, so uh, the supreme court decision has three kind of views and criticism on it one is that the supreme court merely used an excuse uh to get rid of nawaz uh and it was the establishment's pressure this is the view which is shared by washington post new york times foreign policy foreign affairs and perhaps adil as well mm. uh then there is a view uh which is a legalistic view that whenever a court decision comes it's always based on a any on a very precise point this is how you decide about capital punishment as well it's on a, on a, on a point you know it's not on a broader picture the broader picture may help the uh, the judges to make your mind it's just a uh, narrow so judgment it's always a narrow judgment when you hang someone it is because because you prove something there's a point yeah, and oj okay. simpson got abdicate got you know he got scot free out of the murder everyone believed oj had murdered oj simpson had murdered his wife and his lover a lover right. but you know on the glove issue the jury couldn't really convince itself so oj got a uh, thing but there's a third view as well the third view is this that uh, nawaz's lawyers realizing this thing that a decision of disqualification is imminent given the public 15 month long public debate this is what has been ignored by new york times and by other people who are not here that ever since the uh, icij came up with these uh, the story mm-hmm. in april 2016 yeah since the supreme court verdict there be two supreme court benches one jit uh, national assembly debate parliament debate and all political parties were part of the debate in about 45 to 50 million Pakistanis are active on social media which is Facebook and Twitter every Pakistani who had slight understanding on the road whether he's a cobbler or shoemaker or a car mechanic was interested yeah. uh, you know if supreme court had not disqualified nawaz supreme court was under tremendous pressure so nawaz's lawyers and you're saying public pressure not just elite pressure but public pressure generally there were three, three kind of pressures there was immense public pressure from more educated sections of society civil society mm-hmm. media electronic media you know um, and, and especially from social social uh, social media which okay. reflects more educated college educated pakistanis right what okay. 50 million so uh, so supreme court had to go for a decision Uh, a decapitation decision but the the lawyers some of the third minority point of view is this which is now becoming more and more visible is that the supreme court and the nawaz lawyers struck a tacit deal because three of the judges were sort of didn't want to decide for it at least two of the judges hmm. so there was an internal compromise in which they have given a judgment on a narrow point which helps nawaz in his politics okay uh, and helps him in a possible review of the decision which he has filed so he can say that look i was only disqualified on the issue of not drawing salary from fzd capital which was my son's company and all this and you know this is hardly anything and i'm not being convicted of corruption and at the same time he is refusing appearing he's refusing to appear behind the nab national accountability bureau right three times they have been summoned which are all corruption cases so it helps his politics and the last day when the proceedings of the court had already uh, finished Nawaz's lawyers submitted their final arguments in writing on a Saturday uh, uh, after the close of the proceeding and the arguments in which they admitted uh, to the FZD capital and not drawing the salary thus right. in a way it's a plea you know, bargain basically it it's it's it, it's it's plea bargain i mean this is the third view that this was actually technically a plea bargain mm-hmm. the american way without calling it a plea bargain sure, sure. Said, okay let us sentence and disqualify us on a smaller point uh rather than the Ashreef. this is the third yeah, view yeah 
the first is an excuse view yeah. that they were looking for an excuse under the pressure of establishment or public pressure yeah. the second is that it was a legally correct view uh right. because this was the admitted fact yep yep uh, you don't don't forget this thing this is a fact that was admitted by sharif lawyers mm-hmm. uh the other facts the supreme court's view was this that then since the sharif lawyers have not been given the opportunity and supreme court is not a trial court and uh, there has to be a trial court to look at these facts right. that is why all the facts have been referred to a trial court where nawaz is not participating he refuses to participate in the trial so forth right Okay, well, that's a great level of granular detail that I don't think most most of our listeners had or appreciated. This is this is fantastic. Um, let me ask you, just generally going into you know, your, your, what is your prediction for the September seventeenth election? What what is your expectation of what's going to happen? Uh, unless some false lines emerge within the PMLN, some kind of non-cooperation takes place. Mm-hmm. Uh, Consume Namaz should be able to win the election. Okay. But a lot of people think that given the setbacks which Nawaz had and his, um, he, there is there are serious challenges because the challenger itself is a very capable woman. Mm-hmm. She's a professor of gynecology who has served in the area. Uh, uh, professor Rashid, uh, Yasmin Rashid of the Pakistan Tariq and Saab. And she, even in 2013, in an election which is considered to be seriously rigged, created a serious challenge for Nawaz Sharif himself. Wow. So it's quite possible that there is a challenge. Yeah. But now some people suspect that the news of Kalsum having throat cancer would play to the sympathy factor. Okay. And some people suspect that this has been introduced in order to garner the sympathy factor mm. so that Mariam can go and cry uh, for her mother. Uh, they are strong, they should be able to win it unless there are fault lines within their party yeah. or unless uh, Khan and Yasmin Rashid uh, launch a very effective campaign, which they are capable of, right, right. because Imran will be sitting in power and launching a campaign. So looking forward though to 2018, independent of political parties and personalities, what do you see as the top three issues that Pakistanis will go to the polls to vote on? Uh, Pakistani elections are not fought on issues the way American elections or even Indian elections are fought, the way right. Indian elections were fought the issue of accountability and corruption, mm. which brought Narendra Modi to power for a clean government. Uh, it hasn't really happened in Pakistan. Okay. Uh, but I suspect that 2018 elections might become an election for a clean government in Pakistan okay. because Imran Khan will like to structure he'll, this. He'll make it the issue. Uh, he will turn that because of his his impact on the politics. Can you hear me? Or I have, you, have you lost? I can mind? hear you. I can hear you. Okay. Because of Imran's significant impact because had Imran not been campaigning against Nawaz, we are sure that Nawaz would have tied it up, would have managed to survive the Panama controversy. Uh, this one single person, uh, Imran Khan, would ensure this thing, the 2018 election becomes an election for a clean government, corruption against dynastic politics, yeah. and for a more sovereign Pakistan that is that doesn't take dictation. Right. Because Imran, Imran has been told several times that he should engage United States, he should go to Washington, speak in think tanks. He says that's not going to help. People of Pakistan have to decide. Mm. So he will likely turn that election into a sovereign Pakistan. Um, sovereignty, uh, clean government. Sovereign Pakistan, sovereignty, clean government, yeah. non-dynastic. Dynasty is also an issue. Yeah, yeah. That there shouldn't be a dynastic rule in Pakistan. Right, right. Personal question for you. <clears throat> How do you get people to answer hard questions that you know they don't want to answer? 
Um, it's quite a problem. Um, uh, politically important people, uh, especially in the government, uh, avoid answering difficult questions. They avoid this by getting angry and throwing tantrums. Mm. So the actual issue is ignored. You can always grill the opposition. So one way of having an effective debate on issues is to call the analysts or the media commentators that are aligned with one or the other political party. Okay. So when you call the ruling parties, uh, uh, commentators who are sitting in media or who write for them, who are aligned columnists for them, then you can have a more meaningful debate. Yeah. Uh, and more and more television channels are switching towards it. But also, Samir, don't forget that Pakistani electronic media is increasingly becoming irrelevant because all Pakistani educated classes now use Twitter and Facebook. Gotcha. So the narrative shaping, uh, the, the narrative is essentially being drive, de uh, defined by Facebook, especially by Twitter. Everyone who matters in Pakistan is on Twitter mm -hmm. and uses Twitter in a very effective fashion. That is why the Pakistani government in April and May tried bringing charges of blasphemy and they tried frightening the youth by invoking the concept of blasphemy on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. And hundreds of youth were arrested, detained and pressed charges. Uh, so that was an important battle. Uh, but they have not been able to benefit much out of it. Mm. Interesting. Well, we've, we've, we've uh, lapsed through our time, but thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today on South Asian Voices Subcontinental Podcast, and we look forward to future interactions. Sami, thank you so much. It has been a very interesting interaction. Thank you so much. Fantastic. I agree with you. That's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening and bearing with our challenges on Skype. Uh, tune in to the next SAV Podcast. I'm your host, Samir Lawani, signing off.